Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis. I'm Dr. Matt Varis, and this is Episode 8 with Dr. Laura Russell. Now, Laura and I met when we were in grad school. We were in the same program at Western University, and she actually did some research I was a little jealous of, some really cool genomics research. Now, what's kind of unique about both of us is that we went from academia to industry, and we both moved from Canada all the way to the West Coast to California and San Francisco around the same time, too, and kind of right out of our PhDs. And that was pretty rare from where we came from. What's also unique is that when Lori got here, she went through a transition within her first year here that is pretty exemplary of the industry, but can be quite concerning if it's your first time going through it. And what happened was she actually went through a layoff at her first job and then got hired a few weeks later for an even better position right across the street. And this is a perfect example of when you live in a locale where there's a big density of industry, especially in biotech, where there is here in San Francisco or Boston or even in San Diego, it's growing. You really have an opportunity to fail and still land on your feet. So we talk a lot about growing up in London, Ontario, going through undergrad because we went through similar programs and also grad school. And then we talk about her experience going through this career transition. So if any of that sounds of interest, then enjoy. And if not, hopefully one of the future episodes will be of interest. Thanks. Hey, Laura, Dr. Russell, thanks for meeting with me here. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I'm excited to come on your podcast here and talk with you. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was perfect to, to have you come along and talk a little bit about um, sort of your career tra trajectory. We're kind mm -hmm. of both starting off, but... We've had a little bit of differences, some similarities, mm -hmm. um, but the reason I kind of started this podcast was to let people know what the considerations are really coming out of academia, what your different career options are, what that looks like to see the actual person that's gone through it, mm -hmm. and to hear from them, like, what are the real concerns, drawbacks, but then what there is to look forward to and how you go about really choosing where you go next and navigating perhaps in industry, switching between jobs that perhaps people in academia don't realize is kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good subject to talk about because from what I remember, like we were in the same PhD program, right? Mm -hmm. So you're well aware. I think it was focused mainly on people sticking to academia. Right. They didn't really necessarily prepare you for other careers. So it was kind of you're on your own to try and navigate and yeah. see how it goes. So, And I think um, that might have worked like 50 years ago, right? That made sense. I think most people that went in academia were planning on sticking around. And mm -hmm. there was the career path. There were jobs available, that kind of thing. And then I think, you know, even the people I knew that graduated, you know, five years before me, maybe even 10 years, the market's slowly been contracting, I feel like, for academic positions. But it's not necessarily a bad thing because industry has been growing in biotech as well. So you may have to move to different areas, but I feel like it's especially crucial now to use those transferable skills and try to go to industry if, that, if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like you mentioned, uh, we were in the same program. So that mm -hmm. was physiology and pharmacology. Yeah, same uh, year. Same year, yeah. yeah. So we what graduated 2020, right? Yeah. And so we have a very similar background. We're both doctors, apparently, um, at least philosophical doctors in the sciences. And uh, 
we kind of entered our careers at similar times as well. Um, but since we're now actually scientists, which mm -hmm. I still find it weird to say, um, <laughs> my parents find it pretty cool. Um, yeah. So when did you sort of get into science? Did you sort of recognize things as a kid? Was it something that I know a lot of people sort of do research in undergrad and that's when it spurs an interest in research. You remember a time? Yeah, I mean, I don't spe like specifically remember any day where I was like, yeah, yeah science yeah. is the day. I think it was kind of a natural progression for me a little bit because I was asking my parents actually a little while ago what I was like when I was younger. Okay. I don't remember everything. I don't, yeah. I don't really know. And both of them said that I was very curious like I always wanted to know how things worked and I was always asking like, why? Yeah. Like, why is it yeah. like this? <laughs> and um, so there was that. And I definitely, I did pretty well in sciences starting in elementary school, obviously very basic things, but mm -hmm. um, definitely like caught my attention starting early on, but it wasn't necessarily like physiology, pharmacology right mm -hmm. away, especially at that age, you're not yeah, really no, introduced no, yeah. to that, but um, even just like I remember enjoying climate science, like the types of things that were pretty factual. Mm -hmm. um, I like learning about those because it made a lot of sense to me to put the pieces together. Yeah. yeah. And you didn't mind going sort of deeper if you didn't know something to ask that next question and follow up, right? Yeah. Yeah. There was always that kind of intrigue there for me. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, did, so... Were your friends like that as well in childhood? It's a good question. I don't think so. Um, I think I had a I had a wide variety of friends. Like I had, I went to French immersion, um, starting in grade four. So there was this kind of weird transition where I went to an English speaking school, and then um, I was doing well in the French. Um, we had forty minutes of French a day. And then I got recommended to go to this French school. So mm -hmm. I had friends from my English school. And then right. I had friends from my French school. And then I've always been really interested in sports and things like that. So I had friends from soccer yeah. and all of that. And I think even, even when I got to undergrad and was studying science, a lot of my friends I met in residence because mm -hmm. I was living on campus there. Um, and they were in philosophy, social sciences. Like I would say most of my friends weren't in the scientific areas actually interesting yeah um never thought about it that way though yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always kind of curious because i feel like scientists can either go i see them go kind of two ways some all of their friends are scientists and like at work and at home that's all they talk about mm -hmm. and for me i kind of need like a break or change of pace yeah and so i tend to surround myself with people that do all kinds of other things like so my friends are artists, musicians, writers, journalists, uh, politicians, uh, accountants, lawyers, that kind of stuff. It's a good variety. And then, you know, the people immediately surrounding me at work and stuff, they're going to be scientists, right? So I always have that. Mm -hmm. But um, I almost find like it can be good to get out of that and think a little bit differently or even address the questions that are kind of like basic, mm -hmm. but you don't like evaluate on a regular basis. It just kind of mm -hmm. goes uh, as an assumption. So I think it's a good balance. So it's, it sounds like you're more on that, that side of things, right? Yeah, I would say so. And I think 
you have it like exactly right in the sense not every scientist is going to think the exact same mm -hmm. um so you can obviously learn from each other but at the same time other people have different perspectives um and i do learn a lot from them for sure yeah right it's there's different kinds of intelligences right there mm -hmm. um, and i like to value everybody's perspective um okay so I guess let's uh, sort of like go along the scientific journey in your life. If that's all right. Yeah. Um, starting, I guess, from high school, when you were looking to apply to universities, I guess, did you always know you wanted to go to university? Yeah. In, in a way, um, it's funny because like, love my mom, but <laughs> she, she definitely never, um, it wouldn't have been acceptable to go to college. I see. Um, and I don't have that perspective now, kind of like we were just saying, there are different things. And I mean, university is very theoretical, at least for undergrad, right? You're, yeah. you're just learning the theory behind things. Um, I mean, in science, you have some lab-based courses and stuff, but generally you're in the classroom in lecture-style environments. And I mean, I think it's improving a bit now in terms of internship possibilities and more hands-on learning that is associated with universities now. Mm -hmm. But I guess there is that distinction in Canada, at least between university and college. Yeah. And I think that some people used to have a more negative kind of mindset around college mm -hmm. um, and that it, it wasn't as high achieving, but I really think it's just two separate buckets. Yeah. And I, I think they should continue to be two separate buckets. I think they can each have different strengths and mm -hmm. they're, it's a fit for a different kind of person. Like not everyone wants to learn about all the theory and sit in the classroom for like eight hours a day or something. Some yeah. people need to be active and getting involved hands-on and uh, they can just be just as productive and valuable. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so then uh, when you're preparing for university, what kind of factors were you weighing? Like did you know, did you, look at a bunch of different schools? Were you assessing by geographic area or by program, that kind of thing? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, all of the programs that I ended up applying to were in my province, so our province, Ontario. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of good schools, I think. Um, but I never really thought of applying outside of Ontario very much. And even in high school, so you have to take, well, you can select certain courses, right? Um, but when I, I was still in French immersion in high school, so most of my elective courses or um, things that I could choose were actually filled by the French courses that I needed to take oh, to fulfill that French immersion requirement. Were your science courses in English or French? Science courses were in English. Okay. So it was, it was kind of interesting. Like you actually started out with more courses in French in grade nine and 10. Okay. And then it kind of got um, switched. You still had some courses in French, grade 11 and 12, but it was a little bit more English-based. And all of the math and science were always in English. Okay, so it's like kind of preparing you for university. You need the more technical stuff in English? Yeah, so just, just to like finish off that thought, it was basically um, I didn't have a lot of choices other than my French courses and then what my parents kind of wanted me to do yeah. <laughs> which, which was science but i think i wanted it too 
Um, th there was definitely a moment in, in terms of me, like thinking about my life in general and a few years back being like, is this what I wanted all along? Or was I told this yeah, is what I was yeah. <laughs> wanting? But I think, um, it all, it all worked out for the better. And I was interested in science, but at the same time I was so young, like I don't really know entirely what I was interested in. Yeah. Really, yeah. It's sometimes tough to parse, but. It could also be like sometimes you just need to do something yeah and like be active and then from there you're building like a, a building block or a stepping stone where perhaps you have more possibilities than when you started mm -hmm. so at least you're moving in a positive direction yeah um but yeah the the whole influence of the parents i think it could have varying degrees like i feel like some of my friends that like so my like Indian friends specifically, mm -hmm. their parents were like, you're going to be a doctor. Like, yeah. That's the only option. They're like trained from when they're a kid, they're going to be doctor. And mm -hmm. a lot of them go through weird like psychological, you know, I guess questions that they're trying to address, especially in undergrad. And I still feel like most of them become a doctor, but you know, almost while they're, once they're in med school, they're like, okay, I'm going to be a family doctor because I'm, I'm too burnt out. Like I don't want to do any other specialty. Yeah, I'm just I'm gonna settle for that, and then, you know, it's it's a decent career, but I feel like there are so many other options, and when you can kind of survey the field and not be like pigeonholed, then you can really see um, all the possibilities. And I feel like, especially in industry, there's just so many different kinds of companies doing yeah. all different sorts of things, and um, even if you are a doctor, you can use that skill set and apply it to industry as well. So I guess, you know, there's the good and the bad to the parents pushing. <laughs> Sometimes it'll it'll get the kids that are a little lackadaisical to, you know, get running a little bit. But then, you know, those of us that do want to take the time to consider what's meaningful to us. Yeah. Um, sometimes we need a little space. But, yeah. Um, and I yeah. mean, just one other point to that as well is. I wouldn't say my mom was like, this is your career and that's all you're doing. Yeah. Um, it wasn't it wasn't quite like that. But I think what she saw was that there were a lot of great jobs in healthcare in general. And to get there, science, basic sciences was kind of the path. Mm -hmm. um, so she thought that that would be the best way forward, kind of. So I think that's where she kind of stressed that um, we, being myself and my siblings, Kind of follow some sort of healthcare path. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I have two older sisters, and one is an X-ray technician, and one is a nurse in the emergency room. So, oh man, we're she's all going through it. Right now, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's on mat leave right now. Okay, um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting time to be a nurse for sure. Mm. So. Okay, I see. Mm -hmm. So, your mom was like, at least get the undergrad in the sciences and then you can decide from there. Yeah, and I think if I if I really didn't want to do it, she it's not like she would have forced me to. And another thing she also did say when I was asking her about my childhood, she's like you always did what you wanted. So <laughs> I was like even even though I think there's some influence from her, I yeah. do very much kind of march to the beat of my own drum mm -hmm. and figure things out for myself. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So you think you've uh, you've kind of gotten along your own path then as 
you've progressed? I do. There was a moment in undergrad. So for my undergraduate degree, I did a major in medical science and I did a major in French as well. So I, I kept carrying on with the French. Um, I really liked it. It came pretty naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And I did uh, an exchange program as well where I lived in France. So that was in third year undergrad and I didn't take any science courses. It was very chill. Yeah. <laughs> it was more of a, it was a little bit more of a vacation, but also um, I actually credited a lot with helping me grow up a little bit and um, kind of take on more responsibility and think more about what I really wanted to do after undergrad mm-hmm. and things like that. So there was a moment where I thought maybe a career in something French related or in the government as well, because as you know, in Canada, it's pretty important to speak French and English if you do work for the government. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I definitely considered maybe I could do a job like outside of science, but at the same time, I thought, nah, let's go with science. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to go back to when you're applying to university um, because you were saying you were just sticking to Ontario, mm-hmm. right? So I'm curious, like, how conscious of a decision was that? And was it related to having friends and family that are close? Because mm-hmm. I remember talking to my mom when I was applying to university and mine was a little like rushed. So it was a little awkward on top of it. But she was saying that she didn't have the guts to go away from home. Mm-hmm. So like her family lived in Kitchener-Waterloo. She went to the University of Waterloo. And she was like, you know, I maybe I could have gone to Toronto or something and explored the possibilities or whatnot. She's like, I wanted to stay home. Um, her parents were getting older and she wanted to be around, that kind of thing. But in my mind, I was like, okay, well, I don't want that to be the reason I make my decision. Um, I don't mind being close. And maybe for friends, that's probably what I'm going to weigh. But I didn't want to stay in like Waterloo Region, for instance. So I at least went like an hour down the road or something, hour and a <laughs> yeah. half down the road. That was my little separation. And uh, for me, I think it was because it was so rushed, I felt a little safer at least being you know, within driving distance um, mm-hmm. within a day to see my parents. So it was kind of like a happy medium. But I feel like if I would have taken my time a little more, maybe I would have gone a little farther or you know, taken a gap year or something. But I was always in a rush for whatever reason. Well, I think it's a prime example of like hindsight 2020. Yeah. So I think, yeah, like looking back, um, I love to travel now. I don't know if like in grade 12, it was as much of a um, a consideration in terms of like moving away, um, let's say to even like British Columbia or something. I never really thought of it. Like it wasn't it just didn't come to mind, I guess. Mm-hmm. And maybe the fact that there are a lot of good schools in Ontario as yeah, well. Sure. I don't think the decision was specifically to stay close to family or friends, mm-hmm. but I, I can't really put my finger on why there wasn't um, kind of the want to branch out a little bit more. I remember, though, I, I was applying to some uh, different types of programs. So I have a lot of interests and that's that's <laughs> also the issue. So I, yeah. I already mentioned my interest in French in general, French language, French culture, mm-hmm. obviously interested in science. Um, but I also really like sports and exercise. So mm-hmm. I applied to the University of Ottawa, which would have been maybe a six, seven hour drive from right. London, my hometown. 
um, and where we went to school. Mm -hmm. And I got into a program that was French immersion kinesiology. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Like, and they also, um, that school also like offered a pretty sweet scholarship and things like that. So I was really considering that. And mm -hmm. I do remember having a conversation with my mom being like, I don't know, I got into science at Western in London and I got into this French immersion kinesiology program like seven hours away. And she's like, oh, Western's such a good school. You should just stay here. <laughs> and I was like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't, so. It wasn't too hard to sell. No, I think, again, I think I would have been happy either way, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think my life would have unfolded quite differently if I had gone there. Um, but again, no regrets. So <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So did you get to, I guess, keep more in touch with your friends during undergrad? Because they were close, presumably? Or yeah, I think so. I think... It was interesting to go do my undergraduate studies in the city I grew up in um, because the, the friends I was making were mainly from out of town. So those were the ones I was making in undergrad. But then I still had a lot of my friends um, that were in London that I could hang out with. So there, there were, again, kind of the separate groups of university friends, high school friends, and soccer friends, things like that. But looking back on it now, I kind of think there was a bit more pressure to like see those high school friends and my family more because they're in the same city. Mm -hmm. So I would feel guilty if I didn't stay in contact as much because they're right there. But at mm -hmm. the same time, you're kind of going through all these transitions and yeah. like considering new life paths and um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm always curious about people that stick around. Did mm. you find that you had like a different perspective on the city or different relationship with the city? I think up until grad school, I had a somewhat negative view of the city, mm -hmm. maybe because I felt it was small um, and I had lived there for, let's say, 20 years of my life, yeah. <laughs> like ready to move on. But interestingly, probably... I don't know, midway through grad school, I started really appreciating the city a lot more, mm -hmm. being like, I understand why families live here. It still was something that I wanted to get away from just for my own personal growth. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm sure I could get more than just a job at the university. Maybe there's something else, but it is kind of small in terms of opportunities. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like there's a certain set of opportunities. And I guess for our skill base, we can flourish like elsewhere as well, I guess. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting you're saying that there's more pressure to, to visit family and friends. Like that, I'm just thinking back to undergrad. It was a transition definitely for my parents in like seeing me every day versus not um, just in first year. So my mom was like calling me every day. I'm like, I don't, like I, she missed like, you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I want to do my own thing for a while. So that was like something we had to negotiate out and it became easier with time. But I remember, especially in like end of undergrad, grad school, I kind of had made peace with the fact that I'd be leaving mm -hmm. probably to the US, um, if not for the like a bigger city, Toronto or Vancouver, something like that. When did you kind of start thinking about that? Well, if I'm completely honest, I was probably thinking of coming to California in middle school, but 
Um, it seemed like a little far-fetched at that time. Right. I wasn't sure exactly how to go about it. And then, you know, I found enjoyment in Canada and, you know, the caliber of science was just as good as the U.S. So and I had a lot of friends there, really good support group and that kind of stuff. You know, so I wouldn't have minded staying in Canada. But um, it, was, it wasn't until, like, I was ready to apply to jobs that I really had to be honest with myself. And the only jobs I applied to were out in California. Um, so if I was truly honest with myself, I was probably, like, a little nostalgic with Canada and, like, having that safety net of friends and family. But I kind of knew, like, again, for personal growth, I got to go somewhere else. Maybe I can bring that knowledge back. Probably stay here because it's warm. <laughs> I like it, <laughs> but yeah, I kind of had to leave as well. Uh, but I do remember telling my mom specifically, get used to me being far away, and we're only like an hour or two away right now. But pretend, try to imagine that I'm in the U.S. or something, and you can't see me. So we're gonna have to work this out anyway. So might as well start thinking about that now. You were preparing her because yeah, <laughs> you <yeah>. knew. <laughs> well, preparing myself too, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I love my mom and, and my family. We got along really well. So, you know, the pandemic, for instance, has been tricky. I wasn't expecting to come here and then not be able to go see them regularly either. Yeah. When I, I moved here October 2020 and I pretty much didn't go home for a full year, oh, which was the longest I had ever gone. And... I think normally it would have been okay if it was by choice. Yeah. But I think it's harder when it's forced. And there were some big things I missed. Like my sister got married and I watched it on Zoom. And yeah. that sucked. Yeah. Like I would have liked to be there. But sure. at the end of the day, it's it's a minor thing that yeah. we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just tough because... You do know globally we're all going through like this pause in our lives, right? It's normally these big life events that we look forward to and, and gathering with a, a large group, right? Like a wedding, for instance, and to celebrate those steps in, you know, our loved ones' lives, everyone's kind of struggled. So it'd be interesting to see what the ramifications are. But I think going forward, hopefully we'll all be more appreciative of those moments and uh i know i'll really take the time to absorb it and and uh not take it for granted for sure mm -hmm. yeah but i i wasn't away for quite that long the longest i went without seeing them was six months but i probably chanced it a little early on but i was i was a mess out here alone and uh like when i first moved i moved in august was it 2020? Mm -hmm. um, and that was like peak pandemic here in San Francisco. And everything was locked down. Like businesses weren't open. Like I couldn't get my social security card. It was that yeah. bad. And like you need that to do everything. Like I, I didn't have credit. So I couldn't, I couldn't buy anything. I couldn't put deposit down. Like I know the struggle. Everything <laughs> was hard, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was like, as soon as I can go see my parents, I did. So any of the little loopholes that opened up, I was gone. Um, and thankfully, you know, nothing bad happened. And, you know, I made it through um, somehow without catching any of the variants along the way. So very lucky. But yeah, the, the longest I went was six months, I guess, between this past summer and, and the holidays. And that was tough, especially because I was hoping that 
they would come see me, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, my parents are going through their own health kind of stuff and they want to, you know, be careful and, and stick close. So yeah, tough times, but a lot of personal growth too. Like I feel like getting through that, I can kind of handle anything now. It's, <laughs> it's one of those like doesn't kill you, makes you stronger type yeah. things because yeah, I felt very lonely when I came to, I don't know if it was as bad in October, 2020, but still I knew like two people coming here and mm. I wasn't super close with them. So yeah, I mean, started work remotely, didn't meet right. any of my oh, colleagues yeah. <laughs> yeah. and yeah, it was hard. I felt guilty even trying to reach out to meet up with people because I was like, you don't know me very well. Why would you risk yeah. <laughs> coming to meet right. me? So it was a few months of like being quite alone, but things got better. So yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I, I was extremely lucky to have uh, my friend Dylan, who was who went to grad school at Western as well, mm -hmm. and he came out here about a year prior, and he did his degree in biochemistry. Um, but he came out here with his wife, and they're super friendly and welcoming. And so what kept me sane was them. Mm. And we had like a workout regimen. We were like going to the gym four times, four or five times a week. We were hiking every weekend, like both weekend days. Yeah. And, you know, that was enough social interaction to keep me going. But if I didn't have them, I, I don't know what would happen. It would have been terrible. And like through them, we met a couple of friends and we could have our own little kind of bubble. Yeah. Four or five of us. And that kept us going. But yeah, even like meeting people that I knew were out here that I wasn't necessarily close friends with, again, felt the same thing. Like, are we chancing it? Like, is, are people going to get like agitated that I'm asking to hang out? And it's just, it's weird, like social games we're having to deal with as a society. And it, um, something you would never think you have to deal with. You know? Yeah, those are never questions really asking myself. Like if I want to hang out with someone, just ask typically, right? So yeah, not a big deal. Just say no. But then people saying no also feel bad about it too, right? Yeah. So everyone's kind of on eggshells right now, unfortunately. But let's go back to undergrad then. Mm -hmm. um, so you started in the sciences and uh, I guess... We don't spend too much time in undergrad, but for me, the main thing looking back on it was it, I kind of divided it into two halves, like the first two years and the last two years, mm. the first two years, it's building up like a base knowledge of stuff. And they're not really telling you the why or like, you know, they're kind of just like, you need to know this, trust us. And you'll learn like why it's important next year or that kind of thing. And then third and fourth year, you can start choosing courses that more align with your interests. And they go into a little more detail. Sometimes they tell you, oh, what we taught you last year, just kidding. It's not actually like that mm -hmm. similar. But the, and when you look at the details, it's slightly different, which to me, I found a little annoying. <laughs> teach us the way it is right off the bat. But did you notice sort of a transition um, over the course of the years undergrad? Yeah, definitely. Like I do remember first and second year being very basic and I wasn't as interested in the subject matter. Maybe yeah. it was because it wasn't, they weren't telling us like how it applied mm -hmm. um, as much. And I, I kind of understand why they take that approach. I think there can be differences in the learning style and depth of learning in high school. So they try to kind of even everyone out. And yeah, I just remember though, like not really enjoying my science courses very much in those first couple years. 
And that was hard because it's like, okay, then that's where I was like, should I be doing something in right. French? Yeah. And for me, what really changed was, again, when I mentioned going to France and I was there for a whole year, I kind of thought about it. And right before I went there, I took a pharmacology course for the first time. And the pharmacology course was pretty basic. Um, and I really enjoyed it, though. It was the start of learning some mechanisms of action. Right. Yeah. Like how some drugs might bind to a receptor and then elicit a signaling pathway. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time something really clicked for me in terms of thinking, oh, this is really intriguing for mm -hmm. me. And so went to France, came back and had a plan where I was like, okay, it's the only thing I feel like really passionate about. So I loaded up my schedule with every pharmacology course I could take. Mm -hmm. So in third year, we could only take like one um, full year pharmacology course. But in fourth year, I took everything. I took, <laughs> I took clinical pharmacology, cardiovascular, genetic pharmacology, pharmacology of drugs of abuse, human toxicology. <laughs> I literally took everything I could fit in my schedule and I really did enjoy it. So that's where kind of the beginnings of going to grad school even started being born in my mind. Yeah. In a sense. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's cool. You just kind of dove right in and you know, it's, it's nice to hear that you took that opportunity to change pace and uh, go to France and, I know a lot of people that did that. Um, like one of my good friends, she was doing a degree. Where was it? I think it was Ottawa. And then she went to France to do like a master's in poli-sci for like eight months real quick and then came back. But she said like it wasn't what she learned necessarily, but it was getting exposed to a different group of people. Mm -hmm. Like in Europe, there's people from all over Europe that also join there that all speak different languages and things. You're exposed to a bunch of cultures like in a different way than you would be here. And then the perspective, some, sometimes they like, especially in po politics, I guess, like the global perspective is different in Europe than in North America. Like they're coming from two different angles. But then, you know, that's kind of like you following your instincts, right? Of like, I need, mm -hmm. I need to do something that I want to do, right? Yeah. And then I can figure it out from there kind of thing. Yeah. And it was interesting because, I mean, no one that I knew specifically went um, on an exchange like this in terms of, for example, everyone that I was with from Canadian universities, there were about 20 of us that went to the same school in France for this exchange program. Mm -hmm. Everyone was on the path to basically become a French teacher oh. or something like that. Okay. Um, and our our classes were entirely in French with the French students. So there were some other exchange people in, in the classes we were in, but it was mainly just like French language, French literature. I did French linguistics as well, studying along with French students. Oh, okay. But yeah, I was the only one in our program that I know of um, from the Canadian students that had a science background <laughs> and like didn't plan on really becoming a French teacher or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was really a year of like reflecting, a little bit of traveling for sure. <laughs> like I only had class three days a week. Okay. Um, nice. But it, it kind of gave me time to just like be away from home mm -hmm. and again grow up and come back with a plan I mm. 
that's one thing that I'm learning to do more, like actually plan. Okay. Like <laughs> even even now, like coming out to California, I knew I wanted to from probably midway through grad school, mm. but I just kind of show up. <laughs> I'm like, I apply for the jobs, I get the job, um, yeah. I come here, but I don't really have a plan. I'm just like, okay, I'm in the job. Yeah, I'll I'm see like, how what it goes. is my five year plan? <laughs> So I'm going to do the planning in the okay. next like couple weeks, really create a five-year plan and um, see how it goes. Okay. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I don't know, it seems pretty late to be doing that. No, not <laughs> at all. Because we just yeah. started a career where we're on our two feet and we can support ourselves. And yeah. that gives you a certain flexibility, right? Yeah. Um, just paid off my student loans. <laughs> oh, congrats. <laughs> Thank I you. I got a little ways to go still. <laughs> it takes time. Yeah. Uh, I want to come back to the the five year plan, but maybe let's like you know walk Sequential. a little through. Yeah, <laughs> I just it, it helps me frame the conversation, I guess. So, in uh, what do I, what do I want to ask from undergrad? Um, oh yeah, you're saying so pharmacology really like clicked and that like spurred your interest. Uh, for me, it was genetics, mm-hmm. and we kind of got exposed to it first year. Uh, did you have Tom Haffey as well as yeah. bio prof? So there's this like notorious undergrad prof in first year bio. This guy that didn't have a PhD, so that's controversial right away. But you used to be able to be a lecturer without a PhD, and he was like on purpose very like abrasive, I guess, or like he didn't. Um, he was just very blunt, I guess. And uh, unfortunately, in first and second year, there's a lot of like pruning of class sizes. So like a lot of people don't move on after first year, for example. And so that was a big course on kind of weeding people out. It was really unfortunate um, that it kind of, a lot of people drop out. But I remember, um, for example, to you know illustrate how this guy was, I think it was the first day of class. He's like, okay, everyone put their hand up. Who wants to be a doctor? Yes, right? I knew you were going to say this. Yeah. I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> so like the whole class puts up their hand, right? And that's, you know, the people that, are dreaming big a lot of people their parents are telling them they have to be a doctor and he means like medical doctor medical doctor right yeah and everyone like puts up their hand i think i did too maybe or like halfway up um and he's like okay well for 90 percent of you that's not going to work out so you should start planning for that right now and everyone's like oh okay but i think like his way because i kind of i took some courses with him later on and he was a lot more like personable i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, but he kind of described his strategy as like no one's going to tell you the truth and he sees a bunch of people like maybe in second or third year just like uh, falling out having like to really go through these like psychological changes of like what do i actually want to do and his perspective was the earlier people know the better so i'm not trying to be a dick uh, but i am trying to like shake him up a little bit yeah no i i very distinctly remember him doing that mm-hmm. and he's like oh yeah most of you put your hands down it's not gonna happen and i mean lucky for me that was that was never my goal i never thought about being a medical doctor ever mm-hmm. but i feel fortunate in a sense because it can be a really difficult path um and if you really want it and it's a struggle for you the the mental battle is there so I appreciate the honesty of that. <laughs> yeah. Him bringing that up. So, 
Yeah, and I think uh, the people that I knew that did really well in that course and took them seriously, I guess, they did go to med school, most of them. But they had amazing grades first year and second year, and that was what's being evaluated for the med school application. And my first and second year were terrible. I was, <laughs> I was there to hang out and like decompress, get away yeah. from family, make some new friends, party probably way too much. Mm. I never studied in high school, so I had a terrible work ethic as well. And the sheer volume of things in undergrad, you can't really get away with this that. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Too familiar. So yeah, I had to learn how to study after I would like bomb an exam. And it, it tended to be like later on in the semester that I, my grades would drop. Mm. Like I normally hit the first midterm doing pretty well. And then motivation or whatever would drop. I guess typically in the winter, which I don't do so well. in. But anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, so, you know, he was kind of, a blunt teacher, but he exposed me to the idea of epigenetics, which mm -hmm. I didn't know about. And uh, I had already kind of been interested in genetics and evolution from because my grade 12 biology teacher was really awesome. And I remember one assignment specifically, she like, we had to um, basically look at pre-hominid species. And uh, I really enjoyed that. So she had like scientific articles printed out for us of like, this is how Australopithecus was discovered and this is what they found and how they did the carbon dating and stuff. And then um, like how Homo erectus was discovered and how that differs and what that means for human evolution, that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, like, okay, we have a pretty good idea where we came from. And, you know, it wasn't that we evolved from apes, which was another thing they kind of taught us in grade 12. It was that there's like random mutation and then like a new species showed up that looked more similar to us than an ape, but it was a common ancestor and we like diverged. But anyway, epigenetics unlocked this whole other set of possibilities, which is that it's not just the code that you're programmed with. There's modifications on top of it that can change how the code is read and expressed. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like the environment impact on who you are as opposed to the genetic impact. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that explains people then, or that explains animals. And so I got to learn more about this genetic stuff, especially this epigenetics. And then, you know, second year genetics was hard for me, um, but it was fun because it was problem solving. It wasn't ne necessary memorization. Yeah, like doing the Mendel kind of different allele. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I forget what they call it, but it's like you do some calculating. Yeah, I can't remember right now. Oh, that's bad. It's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, you had to like solve little puzzles and like look at, you know, fractions of if you have these two parents and they mate, what are the possibilities or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I liked being able to solve a puzzle. That's also when I started drinking coffee because the exams were at like 8 a.m. and I was not awake for I didn't start um, until grad school. Really? Yeah. That's impressive. It was a so it was a social thing. It was like really? everyone from the lab was going down to Tim Hortons <laughs> at the yeah. at the hospital because my lab was in the hospital, and mm. I was like, I want to go. <laughs> and at first, I would go and not get anything, and then slowly, I was like, oh, maybe I'll have some of this. So. Yeah, that's how peer pressure gets you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I didn't drink coffee because I heard that it stunts your growth. I wanted to be a professional basketball player when I was a kid. Of course. So I was yes. like, I'm going to hold off. And then I was like an undergrad. I'm like, I'm too short to play in the NBA anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I need to be awake for this. 
Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, just getting back to, um, you know, that was my exposure to a subject area in biology specifically that I liked. It was unfortunate that I couldn't really take specific courses till third year in that. Um, but then again, same thing. Every course I get into, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So I guess in undergrad, when did you start to realize you may be going to grad school? I think it might not have been till my like very beginning of the last year um, of undergrad. So I remember thinking, okay, um, I've now applied myself in my courses and I'm doing well and I'm interested and I definitely like pharmacology. Mm-hmm. I liked two of my fourth year courses um, the most. Those ones were the genetic pharmacology one I took and cardiovascular pharmacology. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to ask around, like ask my profs, okay, what is grad school like? Is there anything I should be doing now that would give me a competitive advantage? So one of our professors said that I could be a volunteer in her lab. So I did that in my last year of university. So I was doing very basic things, doing like DNA, mini preps, things like that. But it at least gave me some more exposure to the lab and something to have on my resume. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. And then, yeah, I just started looking into different programs that I could go to and trying to understand how to navigate it. Because I don't know, maybe there were some kind of sessions we could go to in terms of learning those things. But I think I did most of figuring it out by just Googling, like, how do I apply to grad school? Mm -hmm. And typically the process would be like reaching out to a supervisor, seeing if they'll take you on and then getting admitted to the program. So I started trying to look at different universities and um, seeing what specific universities had profs in cardiovascular or genetic pharmacology. And this time was different than undergrad because okay. I was actually looking at schools internationally. So oh, wow. I was going to apply to the Netherlands, a school in the Netherlands. And then there was also a prof I found in Australia mm-hmm. um, at Monash University. I think it's in Melbourne. But anyways, and then I also um, found someone who I thought would be interesting to work with in British Columbia. So that's in Canada, but still Mm -hmm. more broad than um, Ontario, which was kind of what I was thinking for undergrad. So Mm -hmm. I feel like there was already some growth there. I had tasted travel and knew that I really liked it. So like on the one hand, yes, the science is important and liking the project that you're on and trying to see if you're going to jive with the supervisor. But I think it's also a great opportunity if you can find that in a new place, then why not have both? You know? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was just, while you were talking, I was trying to remember how much information we had to go on in fourth year. And I think we were pretty much on our own. I think I was just searching each individual grad program and like emailing the admissions office specifically yeah like reading their home page and then yeah. being like okay i don't understand this yeah. like, <laughs> like a I lot of emails <laughs> yeah. um i think i called a few of them which i ra- rarely called people at that point um yeah it was a odd time um 
So I guess you were thinking about things in your last year, so you didn't do like an undergrad thesis, for instance, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I guess maybe I was thinking of it slightly before, because now that you mentioned that, I remember reaching out to Anita Woods, okay. um, yeah. who is at, in our undergrad program, runs the thesis course. Mm -hmm. And I was like, look, I'm not in the honor specialization program. Like technically, I'm not qualified to be a thesis student, but will you take me anyways? And she was like, there's no space. So there must have been something turning at that point that made me, I don't know if it was specifically grad school or if I just thought I needed to get more research experience to see if I wanted research. But mm -hmm. there was a moment where I was like, oh, like I'm only doing this major in medical science. Is that enough? Like, yeah. am I even going to get into grad school without doing a thesis? So it didn't work out for me. And I mean, well, Things worked out for me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I didn't end up doing an undergrad thesis. No. Yeah, uh, I think I similarly was like, okay, what can I do besides my courses to get some more experience? And it was like either for professional school or grad school, probably figured you know, bolster your CV in some way, mm -hmm. um, demonstrate you have other skills than you know just doing the coursework. And I guess I was thinking research assistant right away. And I think actually I applied to be like a work study research assistant or something in third year. And I don't think I got any of them. I applied for that too. I forgot I applied for that. Yeah. I, I remember having an interview now. It was an immunology lab. Because okay. I also kind of laid in my undergrad studies. I took some immunology courses, which I found really interesting mm -hmm. as well. So I applied for work study, didn't get it, and then moved on. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was kind of upset that I didn't get it because it was like they wanted more experience or something to, to be taken. I'm like, where the fuck am I supposed to get that experience? <laughs> this is the point, right? Like, yeah, my grades aren't that horrendous. Mm -hmm. Um. I can speak to you, right? You can tell that I can hold a conversation. Like, can I do a trial? Like, mm -hmm. can I work for you for a week or something? And you see how it is. And I'm like, yeah, we don't do that. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was like, okay, I got to step up my game because I want to be able to work in a lab here. And this is bullshit that I'm not qualified. So I, I stepped up my grades, I guess, that year. And then I was prepared um, to go to the thesis course the following year. Mm -hmm. um, they were, there was no reason for me not to get in. And then at that point, I was reaching out to specific profs even before uh, the thesis course. Because I wanted to know, I wanted to like build a specific relationship with a prof mm -hmm. before I applied. So there's like high probability of success because uh, I didn't want to go through that experience again of, of just losing everything. So I was pretty prepared by the time we were doing it. And we had to select in bio, I think the year before, Right. Yeah, I think you have to select the year before you do the thesis because you start right away in September, mm -hmm. something like that. So did you do because I think from what I remember, like you technically should be in an honor specialization program for a mm -hmm. thesis course. Yeah. Were you in like an honor specialization I was in bio? bio? Yeah. 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 And I tried to get into genetics, but I had like too bad of a grade in like cell bio or something. So I didn't make honors special genetics. Okay. But whatever. I still took most of the courses. But yeah, I think, yeah, because I interviewed in like the semester before, 
third year, I guess. And then I worked in the summer in that lab as a work study student. So it worked out that, you know, the prof um, I linked up with, Cheryl, mm-hmm. my old boss, um, was like, yeah, I'll put an application for you for work study if you're going to be my undergrad student. That way you hit the ground running in yeah. the school year, right? And so that was super valuable too because then I was hanging out in the summer with a bunch of grad students. Getting when, paid. Getting paid. Yeah, exactly, which is a big thing. It was like, oh man, there's someone willing to help me get paid even mm-hmm. though it's like a very little <laughs> amount. Yeah. But, you know, campus is empty from undergrads pretty much in the summer, right? So it's mm-hmm. like grad school's hanging out and it's like a very like collegial atmosphere, at least in that program. So it was really fun to just like be part of the crew. And I got to learn what grad students, what grad student life is actually like. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I was like, okay, I could get used to this. This seems pretty cool. I'll hang out with this for a few years and get a degree, I think, at least a master's. Mm-hmm. And then I did my undergrad thesis and loved it. And so I was like, okay, I'm applying to grad school for sure. Yeah. And then I applied to BC and Toronto and Western. I think that was it. Because I wanted to stay in Canada still. I didn't think I could afford going somewhere else. And I wanted to go to a big city if it wasn't Western. And so I got, I didn't get into U of T, which I was pissed about for their genetics program. It was like super high bar. But I did get into BC, which was essentially equivalent in rigor at least and notoriety. And I was like in the process of matching with a prof. And I think I was having trouble getting into a lab that I actually wanted in that program. There was, I think two of the big labs I was trying to apply to, they were in an off year for funding, so they weren't accepting any students. So mm-hmm. I had to wait a year and I was like, shit, but that's why I would want to go there. I don't want to do like plant genetics or something. Yeah. Um, I had a very similar experience at BC because like I mentioned, I liked cardiovascular pharmacology and um, there was this pretty highly renowned prof who did um, research in diabetes and specifically pharmacology research. And I was very interested in being in his lab and we had a couple Zoom, or it wasn't Zoom at that time, it was Skype, I think, Skype calls. (laughs) (laughs) But regardless, um, he seemed very interested, but at the same time he said, I can't hire anyone right now. Will right. you wait like yeah. a year, or a year and a half? And I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? No, I, I don't think I can do that. So, I mean, looking back, if like, if you really, really wanted that lab, it wouldn't be that much time. But I don't think you think that way when you're, when you feel motivated and you're ready to go and keep learning. It's like, you don't really know what you're going to do with a year off. And that's kind of scary to take that chance even. Yeah, like a year off in your early 20s is a lot different than late 20s, I feel like. Yeah. You're like, you're, uh, I don't know, it's almost with more perspective, a year is less important. And then you can kind of realize, again, looking back, hindsight is 2020. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that off year is a good thing anyways, right? Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Like, I can't take a year off. Like, I need to keep this pace and I want to finish school as (laughs) soon as possible and be out of here. That's true. Well, because... Especially if you're considering a PhD, it's like, you know, it's going to be, let's say, five years mm-hmm. and you don't want to be done school any later than you have to. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And uh, yeah, so I, I applied to that program. I got accepted and I accepted that. And I was in the process of matching 
And then I was looking into like housing and stuff like that. And I was weighing all of the variables and I was like, I don't know if this is even feasible to be Expensive. honest. Yeah. I was like, you got to live in Vancouver. I was like, and I'm a grad student, so I'm not going to make any money. It's where am I going to get this money from? It's not like I had savings and like my parents couldn't support me at all. And like, I'm going to work a job on top of grad school. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I was weighing all these options and I'm like, shit, I'm going to be so stressed out if I go out there. And on top of it, I'm going to have to make new friends and stuff. So that's going to be going to take like a year or something to adjust. And then it's going to put me behind in my program and all this stuff. I was like, hmm, maybe I should just stay at Western. And part of me felt like I was settling because that's where I did my undergrad. You know, it was a good opportunity to get new experiences, go somewhere else. But then part of me was like, okay, if I'm really thinking about my future and setting myself up best at the end of grad school, then hitting the ground running to start grad school and maybe finishing early is maybe a better option. And from what I could glean by then from the grad students and stuff, it was that it doesn't matter so much the grad school you go to, it's the lab that you go to and how productive you are because mm -hmm. people end up going all over the world, right? Um, and so I, I was starting to build the confidence like if I did a degree at Western, I would be okay. Um, and so ultimately that's why I decided and I, I think it worked out. Yeah, I'd say it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So then at, at what point did you look at Western specifically and how did you go about picking a prof there? Yeah, I only, I was looking at Western, but kind of similar to you, I, I wanted to get out. Like we had just done our undergrads at Western and especially for me, I was from the same city grew up there and everything so i think i was ready to go but the stuff at um ubc wasn't working out because of the prof and the timing mm -hmm. and i looked at western around the same time just to see what the options were um kind of as a backup plan but at the same time i only i only saw two profs that i thought of working for mm -hmm. one was in cardiovascular pharmacology and I'm glad I didn't join that lab because things went down and he got asked, asked to leave the school. Um, <laughs> was that in Fizz Farm? Fizz Farm. Okay, so I know who that was then. Yeah, so... Damn. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I was thinking you were going to say Rob Hegley. At, uh, oh, yeah, Robert. no. Hegley is a, a really great scientist and yeah. I, I don't think I even came across his name somehow. I don't know. Um Maybe because he's he was more affiliated with Robarts at that time, and I was yeah. looking in Fizz Farm. He's more a genomics guy as opposed to pharmacology, yeah, I guess. that's very true. Yeah, he's yeah. pretty hardcore genomics. Um, but then, yeah, the other prof I was looking at um, was the supervisor that I ended up going with. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, like he had a very impressive track record, and I didn't think he would take a student like right. me who yeah. had never done a thesis or anything like that. But I reached out to him and had an interview and it went well. And I remember him saying after the fact, like he was excited to have me because he said I was well-rounded and had oh. lots of different interests. So it was kind of interesting to me that he considered that just because I think 
some people are very like, okay, what are your grades? What are your scientific accomplishments? But he was like, oh, no, it'll be great to have you in the lab. Like you bring different perspectives. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, when I did get the offer, I was a little surprised, (laughs) but also I was like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. This is the one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's super renowned worldwide. I didn't know how much until like I started going to conferences in grad school and And people were like praising him like hard. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, he's a huge deal. And even in Canada with like personalized medicine, right? Yeah. The guy. But okay. So did you start like in September or in the summer? Yeah, I started in September. So the summer before that, um, I actually took the summer off for the first time ever because normally I would work full time just to make some money. I worked as a lifeguard for eight years. That was kind of my okay, co- college job. One. Yeah, yeah, not a bad one, especially in the summers where it's hot, um, working outside at pools. It was good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I took that summer off and did some traveling and some volunteering. Um, and I think that was good to like have that break yeah. and then start grad school. Because yeah. obviously a big thing, at least with our grad school, I think any grad school in science is like this. You don't get summers off. Right. You just yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> you just yeah. go for master's two years or like PhD five ish years. Yeah. So did you realize that beforehand? Like was that a conscious thing you wanna, you know, yeah. get the adventures in beforehand? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I was thinking the same thing. I went to Portugal with my family for the nice. first time. Um and it was so much fucking fun. Um there's, you know, difficulties there's five of us that are traveling all at the same time so Mm -hmm. just managing the logistics of that is difficult yeah everyone was generally in really good spirits and we stayed there for like a month oh that's sweet easy yeah Um, but that's where where uh my mom's family is from okay we stayed with like family friends and stuff and like we knew a few of them because they had either lived in canada for a certain amount of time or visited a few times Mm -hmm. and so you know it wasn't so foreign so i guess it didn't feel as long because we were Hanging with family. It's like going to the cottage or something, right? Yeah. Um, but definitely it was a conscious decision from the whole family. Like Matt's not gonna have time for like five years. Let's okay. do this now. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad we did that. But the one thing I was gonna say was applying to grad school, I remember um maybe it was once I was in grad school, a bunch of profs applying to European either PhD programs or postdoc programs for their students from Canada. So one I can remember, this lady, um, Swedish lady who's working at McGill, was applying to a postdoc for one of her PhD students and like writing reference letters or whatever. Okay. Um, And like they get evaluated on different things in Europe apparently. Mm. Like if you're not well-rounded, that's a big red flag. Like if you don't have volunteer experience, if you don't travel, if you don't enjoy some activity that you can break your time up, if you're not passionate about something outside of the science, yeah, then they tend to not accept you, which mm. is like opposite of what's here in some cases. Yeah, I right? think so. I think like not even just grad school, but like med school, yeah. so grade focused and things like that. To be honest, I barely made the cutoff for the minimum grade average I needed to get into grad school. Yeah. But I'm glad that that wasn't an issue in my supervisor's eyes. He's mm-hmm. like, doesn't matter. You got in. Yeah. 
I'm like, you made, okay. The important part is you made the cutoff, I guess, not how far along. And I think it it does say something that like my grades in first and second year were not great. Mm-hmm. And I made up for it in third and fourth year. And you right. can just tell like there's a huge improvement, obviously, Same. between like a 65 and like a 90. It's like, oh, so like you were just figuring it out, you know? Yeah, exactly. And you're so young when you go into undergrad. It's like mm-hmm. some people are 17. Yeah. I was 18. I like was, I was 17. Yeah. yeah. And a young boy, a bunch so reckless. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah um so it's a, it it does depend on the person right you, and so especially when you're doing grad school that specific supervisor that specific lab is key so i got a lot of advice when i was applying because i had met a bunch of grad students in undergrad there they're like whatever lab whether it's here or, or somewhere else you want to talk to the grad students because they're going to be able to tell you what life is like working for that supervisor. And that's the most important part mm-hmm. because if you have a prof that just like is not supportive, puts you down all the time, doesn't recognize your achievements, doesn't support you for like trying something new or applying to scholarships or whatever, it can just tank your grad school career. Yeah. And that's like a nightmare situation and hopefully it doesn't happen that often. But it is possible. So you want to cover your bases, right? Yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, I saw something I liked the other day on Twitter. um, Uh And it was talking about mentorship, basically. Because I think mentorship is huge. Super important for the development um, of any grad student, obviously. But it was basically someone just saying that, so they're a PI, they're a supervisor. And whenever they train grad students, they treat them as like colleagues. Oh, not as like too. less than or inferior obviously no one tries to be like treating someone inferiorly necess- well maybe not no one but right. <laughs> hopefully yeah, yeah. but i think just like going in with the mentality that they're your equal mm-hmm. um i think that's hard sometimes to do because supervisors obviously have a lot more experience and things but I think it brings in the humanity approach of being like, okay, everyone has to start somewhere. Like, they're not stupid. Like, you just have to kind of treat them equally and and help them bloom, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, like, that framing is super important because, like you said, you can have this unconscious sort of thing where you're like, I'm more experienced. You don't even think about it, but it comes off as you're talking down to someone, right? Or at least you're not elevating what they have to say if it's you know valuable, and that was something that Cheryl said as well when I was interviewing. Like we, here, we value the science first. We want everyone to make contributions. We don't want there to be a hierarchy of things. No one's time is more important than someone else's. We expect everyone to be supportive and teach new techniques, and that kind of thing. Share that knowledge. Yeah, I was like, okay, that makes me feel pretty pretty safe here. Then. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um. Okay, so grad school, mm-hmm. and then I want to talk about industry for a while to round out things. Yes. Okay, so grad school, what did you do? Did you feel imposter syndrome? And how did that help you get to where you are now? Yeah, so grad school, my lab was called at the time personalized medicine, but now precision medicine. Mm-hmm. So it was focusing on um, genetics and how genetics can affect the response to drugs. Super cool. So it really did put like two of my passions together, which was 
super important, I think, if you're if you're wanting to kind of start out your career or, or build on that, I mean, you got to be really passionate about it. Um, so that's one thing. Specifically, I studied, because you know it, it gets very detailed when you do a specific PhD thesis project, yeah. for example. I started out as a master's student, as many people do, mm-hmm. at least in our program. And then after a year and a half or so, I switched into the PhD. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the way that you know this works is you don't have to finish the master's thesis. Um, you just kind of carry on with the project, and at the end, you write your big thesis. So mine was looking at a drug transporter that's expressed on liver cells, mm-hmm. um, and basically that's responsible for taking certain drugs into the liver cells so that they can exert their mechanism of action and then be metabolized. So. You can imagine that if there's genetic variation, mm-hmm. let's say that renders the transporter less effective or more effective, then that can change the concentration of drug both in the bloodstream and in the liver cell. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I started by looking at specific genetic mutations that are present in humans. Yep. Number one, these are pretty rare in the transporter I was studying. So they hadn't been explored in detail. So I did a lot of studies in vitro, so using mm-hmm. um, different cells, and I would express the genetic variants of the protein into the cell and then do transporter studies. So um, give a drug or a bile acid, for example, to the cells and see whether or not there was less or more uptake. Um, so pretty simple studies and all in all, but I was doing it for like 35 different genetic variants, all individually. (laughs) (laughs) So transport studies, looking at um, mRNA and protein expression as well, things like that. And then um, I also did a knockout mouse model for that. So, yeah. (laughs) Could we, I don't think I've covered this on the podcast. Yeah. Could you briefly explain what a knockout mouse is? Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of different ways to generate a knockout mouse, but basically the goal here is to render my protein of interest, that drug transporter, to like knock it out. So that means it doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So you're studying the effect of, let's say, giving a drug to the mouse or um, maybe measuring something endogenous, Mm -hmm. um, seeing how the absence of that transporter affects maybe concentrations in the blood again, concentrations in different tissues. So seeing how the body in a more physiological approach as compared to just like if you're doing it in cells, you don't have all the other systems of the body working. Mm -hmm. So doing this in an animal model gives you a more holistic approach to understanding really are there compensation mechanisms? Do other proteins try to compensate for the lack of that protein? kind of just putting it in an intact system. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's essentially genetic, genetic engineering yes. of a mouse, right? Yeah. And then you're studying the consequences. So mm-hmm. uh, I know the answer to this, but would you have used CRISPR or something like that? Because that's all the rage these days. Right? <laughs> we wanted to use CRISPR at one point. So this, this knockout mouse mo- model for my protein specifically was kind of in the works before I got into the PhD program. Mm-hmm. It was something my supervisor had wanted to do for a while because um, this transporter hadn't been studied in that way. Um, so we didn't use CRISPR, but we were struggling to knock it out. Oh, okay. um, and we considered CRISPR, but it didn't make sense. Eventually we got it um, 
by using a different approach. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I just, <laughs> um, I want to take the opportunity when we can to explain a little bit of the nuances that of the science mm -hmm. that maybe get lost in the super exciting stuff that people see on the news and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think most people would have heard of what CRISPR is, mm -hmm. which is essentially like molecular scissors, people call it. Where you can snip the genome where you want and then mm -hmm. you can pretty much replace or just remove it or you can replace that area with mm -hmm. essentially whatever you want. Yeah. So that's like a huge revolution in genetic engineering. Yeah. And it's not like you need to cut out the entire gene, mm -hmm. just a little piece and then um, that usually will do it. Yeah, for yeah. the knockout at least, you're yeah. cutting out part of the gene mm -hmm. typically that renders it dysfunctional or non-functional or not even expressed. Yeah. But specifically in modeling mice, so that's really important in pharma, for instance, just as Dr. Russell said, if you want to evaluate how all the organ systems affect um, drug metabolism, for instance, but they don't often use CRISPR, at least these days, yet. Mm -hmm. Because one of the main issues and why we're not genetic engineering humans, um, even for devastating diseases, is there could be off-target effects. Mm -hmm. So there's these molecular scissors, but they look like they look at, um, I guess you know, for the words on the genome, mm -hmm. and it's a very small set. So yeah, you can like imagine 20, 25 letters. Yeah, letters, and you yeah. can imagine like the whole genome is billions of letters, mm -hmm. and so you might see that pattern somewhere else, right? And so those scissors will just clip anywhere they see that pattern. And it might be the area you want and somewhere else you didn't look. Mm -hmm. um, so there's people developing all sorts of assays and algorithms and things to avoid those, but it's not perfect yet. And so there's a more like tried and true approach mm -hmm. that they use in mouse genetics. And that's um, typically like the Cree locks P method yep. or flip recombination is what it the another way to do it yeah we did cree lux p for my mouse model yeah it's pretty standard yeah yeah and i i worked on a couple of those as well nice um and the other thing i wanted to let people know is um you could probably verify like to generate one of these mice takes a long time and a lot of money yes uh, yeah <laughs> so it's uh, if it works, it's, it tends to be really valuable in the field mm -hmm. and to that specific supervisor as well. Because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the value comes from the novelty. Yeah. If, if you're the first one to do this in a living mouse, for example, which is often used in research, it's the first kind of whole animal, um, then you can typically publish a high-impact paper. Mm -hmm. But if someone beats you to it, even if you don't know they're working on it yeah. and you're kind of working on it side by side and they publish before you, it really kind of downgrades the novelty sometimes and yeah. can take away. So even though you, you had this great scientific idea, if you're not the first one to put it out there, it's not going to be you that necessarily gets the credit as much. And yeah. it is important for scientists to yeah. have that credit. We have a word for that, right? Scoop. Scoop. Yeah. So you don't want to get scooped by someone else publishing you know, similar study to you beforehand. But again, if that mouse model works, then typically you can do a lot of follow-up studies and collaborate with other people that want that as well. But a lot of the times it can model something like in humans. So if you have this disease that's genetic and you develop a mouse model that has the exact same mutation, that's super valuable um, to pharma, for instance, because you, you want the highest fidelity model of what a human might be and having the same genetics in a mouse, essentially, 
um, is a great way to do that in many cases. Okay. Um, so already we can kind of see how the skill base applies to pharma, right? Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think a big part of that is, I mean, genetics is a whole big area of science, mm -hmm. but specifically like already for my PhD, I was working on drug transporters. So we were very pharmacology focused um, starting out in our lab. Mm -hmm. So even like not to jump too far forward, but like what I do today in industry is focused a lot on similar similar things like drug transporters and drug metabolizing enzymes. So having that background has been pretty critical for what I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's jump ahead then and see like, okay, uh, end of grad school, you're thinking of what to do next. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our colleagues, you know, were attempting to pursue academia. I assume you're going to conferences and things and trying to meet people and see yeah. where you might go next. What did that look like for you? Yeah, so in grad school in general, I did try to put myself out there and go to a lot of conferences. I really enjoy the in-person specifically yeah. <laughs> kind of vibe of the conference. So loved going to sessions where you could learn the cutting edge science, sometimes stuff that hasn't been published yet, things mm -hmm. like that. And I mean, networking, I think, is a very important aspect of that as well. Mm -hmm. So networking with people at the conference, like you have to actually put in effort, you know, yeah. like I would try to reach out to people and ask to just have a 30 minute coffee chat, things like that. And even not at conferences, I would do the same thing, like get involved with with societies. So I was part of the Canadian Society for Pharmacology and Therapeutics, as well as the International so Society for the Study of Xenobiotics. Okay. Xenobiotic being a drug. Um, so just being part of those societies and taking advantage of some of the things they have to offer because kind of like we mentioned, there wasn't as much guidance necessarily from our graduate program. Right. It was kind of like a little bit you're on your own. So for example, the International Society I was and still am a part of had a really good mentorship program that I discovered in the second last year of my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I had a really good mentor the first year I joined that and she was very helpful. I um, We would have half an hour conversations just on the phone every month. Oh, nice. And she'd be like, okay, you drive the conversation, just like, what do you want to talk about? And it would be often at that point, well, for example, for a while I was like, oh, should I do a postdoc or should I go into industry? Mm. And for me, the postdoc wasn't necessarily to become a supervisor. Mm -hmm. It was just to gain more knowledge and expertise so that I might be a more competitive candidate for industry. Mm -hmm. So like I knew pretty early on, probably by my second year, that I didn't want to be in academia. So then, yeah, kind of just understanding whether or not a postdoc was necessary, whether or not I actually really wanted to do it or thought I needed to do it. Yeah. That was an important conversation. And also just, yeah, that mentor I, I'm speaking about, she met me at the conference, introduced me to people there. And that's actually where I met my first boss. So at, at my previous company that I am no longer with, I worked there for just over a year, but I had met her through networking, um, kind of 
through my mentor, if that yeah. makes sense, because yeah. they worked together for quite a while and she thought she would be a good person for me to connect with. And it went well and we had each other on LinkedIn and I saw a job posting and um, we connected through that. Nice. So that you did exactly what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. And it worked out exactly how you would hope, right? Yeah. Um, you also did an internship, right, in grad school? I did. So that was pretty much right midway through grad school. So at like two and a half years, Mark. And that was also through a kind of similar networking type experience. So for example, it's not super common for people from our program to do an internship. Right. I was just going to ask you <laughs> how common. Yeah. Yeah. Not very common. I knew that someone maybe four years earlier in our same program who was in my lab, um, she did an internship actually with the same supervisor mm -hmm. in industry that mm -hmm. I ended up doing one. And I was interested for one because I knew I wasn't going to stay in academia and I really wanted to see what industry was like. And I mean... Again, it doesn't hurt that it was in like South San Francisco, beautiful California, yeah. you know. And so I was like, okay, this seems like a really great opportunity. And there's a connection there because um, the supervisor for my internship was actually a postdoc for my PhD supervisor years back. So they worked together, um, had a good relationship. And the internship supervisor would come every year to Western to give a guest lecture in the clinical pharmacology course. Nice. So when she came the one year, I went to her guest lecture and then we also had lunch. So it wasn't just me and her at lunch, it was all the grad students. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was just asking her questions about it and I kind of kept in touch with her here and there. And I asked her, is there anything specific, like any courses I can take outside of our like coursework that we would do for our university that would give me any competitive advantage in industry. Mm -hmm. So I ended up taking this course that was a little over my head <laughs> at the time, being like a second year PhD student, but um, it was a course in like pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and modeling. Mm -hmm. And I think just the fact that I was interested in learning and really like bettering myself and putting in the extra effort to get those skills. She saw that when I reached out later um, to do an internship with her, she was like, oh, you have like put things forward in motion and stuff. And she had an internship project she was thinking about. So then we just did it. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Yeah, it was nice. good. What was I going to ask? For that? Could could you say the company or is that confidential? No, I think I think so. Yeah. Okay. So it was at Genentech in South San Francisco. So mm -hmm. it's a pretty um, large company mm -hmm. in San Francisco itself. Um, there are 15,000 employees, or at least there were in 2018 when I did the internship. Mm -hmm. I believe it's almost been four years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're a subsidiary of Roche. So really great company to work with. A lot of cutting edge science going on there. And yeah, it was my first exposure to what industry really meant. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was kind of like this foreign concept. Yeah. I was like, especially what in Canada. Is industry. It, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I would describe it as like a fast paced research environment where, I mean, doing an internship is a little less intense because mm -hmm. 
usually they're not putting you on a very pressing project, right? Yeah. Um, it's something they want to investigate, maybe some idea that they've been thinking about for a while, but don't have the bandwidth or something like that. Um, but yeah, another another thing, um, this supervisor at Genentech, who ended up being uh, my supervisor for the internship, she, I forget what exactly her title was at the time, maybe principal scientist or something. Mm-hmm. We would meet weekly and like catch up about the project and other things. But I was also bringing up with her. I was like, oh, should I do a postdoc or go into industry? And she actually favored the idea of a postdoc. She thought it's a really good opportunity. And I mean, it's never a bad thing if you are interested in it. Mm -hmm. But another thing she said was that working in industry, like as a scientist, principal scientist is kind of like being an academic supervisor without worrying for any grant funding mm-hmm. <laughs> and anything like that. So she she felt that, yes, there are some questions that you have to answer for the company and you don't always have all the creativity that you might have in an academic setting. But mm-hmm. at the same time, at least at Genentech, they're very research oriented to try and like, they really like to publish and things like that. Mm-hmm which not every single company is as focused on. Mm -hmm. But she was basically saying she still had a lot of, I guess, scientific creativity um, and bandwidth for that and funding for that. Um, So she was able to do really cool science and think of new studies she wanted to conduct without worrying about all the headaches that come along with grant writing, how competitive it is and things like that. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. And I would almost argue that sort of the increased freedom you get in academia gets nullified by how the grant system is set up because you're not going to get approved for a grant on a subject area that you don't have formidable expertise in Mm -hmm. or like a lot of preliminary data setting you up. Yeah. So it selects for sort of just like Mm -hmm. moving little bits forward, like barely pushing the needle. And I think like it is a shame because I think innovation is very important, but at the same time, it's a huge risk yeah. to take on someone that, that doesn't really have the expertise, even if they try to say, oh, I have these partners who are experts and will help me. I think it's it's a safer bet, especially given that there's not unlimited funding and funding is very competitive to get. It's hard. Like On the one hand, you need strong innovations, but on the other hand, it's like, why would we give this money to you if you can't prove that it's going to work, you know? Yeah. And like, you know, you would hope that the government would put aside a certain amount of funds for like high risk, high reward opportunities. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's some of that, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's more and more going towards even those high risk opportunities are getting funded by industry anyway. And like they might donate, to the university and like have a named department or something yeah that supports that but like sometimes like the scale of resources need don't align with a grant program right yeah and i think to be honest i don't know enough about it even i just know that it's super competitive you could have a really cool idea it doesn't get funding and i mean there is a lot of like you might take it personally it might be like a long road before you actually get funding like 
my PhD lab had a lot of funding when I started and then there was a, a bit of a dry spell and I think there's a bit more money now, but I think it's a bit of a psychological game as well. You yeah. gotta, you gotta be really resilient. mentally tough and yeah. resilient to, to deal with that and be like, Oh, it's okay. Like I'll just keep working. It's like, okay, <laughs> I hope yeah. it works out. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of prost. Like I, this is the third time I got rejected for this grant, but then the fourth time they get it. Yeah. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, that, that mind game I have a hard time with. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is like, you'll come up with a great idea and then you'll spend a few months writing a grant mm -hmm. and they'll take a few months to get reviewed and they'll take a few months for the funding to get released. The time. So by the scale. time you come up with the idea to the time you can get started is often over a year. Mm hmm. And hopefully in industry that gets like shrunk down like right away. You basically yeah. come up with the idea. You don't have to write a big grant. Mm -hmm. You have to maybe give a presentation, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you can like do that quickly. Typically there's um, systems set up to evaluate new proposals in the industry more rapid fire, fire and on a more continual basis than granting agencies, for instance. And so really you can kind of like have an idea and get started like pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And to me, like that helps me keep momentum as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I like that aspect. I did want to just say a couple of things about Genentech because it is a unique company. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it was the first biotech company ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they started an industry with recombinant DNA. Yes. And remember what their first product was it was either oh is it insulin, insulin i think or yeah. human growth hormone oh I think it was maybe insulin. human i don't know it one, of one of those two but they were both very early yeah um did you ever read the book the gene i'm reading it right now yeah i think it it talks about genentech the, oh yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i read it a couple years ago but there's a little like i remember a, a intro to kind of genentech being yeah. being the founding father <laughs> yeah. yeah well yeah that book is really uh, well written by siddhartha Mukherjee. yeah um the gene yeah i'm like two-thirds done something like that uh my sister bought it for me and i told her i'd read it i read it on like flights it's lengthy yeah but uh it's good i'm enjoying yeah. it yeah i, like I just it. don't read that often in general <laughs> that's fair i mean there's lots of papers to read <laughs> yeah yeah true um but uh like that was a huge advance in being able to scale up medicines, for instance. So insulin, the big one, um, is that they used to have to take pancreases from animals to extract the insulin because mm -hmm. that's the organ in the body that makes it. Yeah, there was and, no like synthetic yeah. insulin made. Yeah, so you only had as, as much insulin as was in a pancreas and it scaled linearly with how many pancreases you have. So you can imagine... You got to kill an animal for every pancreas you want. Mm -hmm. And they used to use dog pancreases, apparently. Mm. So you have like a vat of dog pancreases and you take the fluid out and it has insulin in it. And it's really inefficient. It made it really expensive. You had the cross species reactivity um, from having to raise it in animals. I think they typically used animals that were going to pass away anyway. So I don't think the ethical concerns were large at the time, depending on how you view that. Um, and so it was like revolutionary to be able to make human insulin in human cells mm. at scale. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And so like you could just have a huge vat of a ton of cells. They scale really easily. And that's their job. They just make insulin and make insulin and make insulin and you just collect it. Um, so that like basically made um, like biologic or like uh, protein-based drugs possible um, as opposed to just like um, chemicals or pills, that kind of thing. And the second was that um, I think Genentech got acquired somewhat recently. It might have happened right before your internship. Um, Are you talking about by Roche? Or? By Roche, yeah. I haven't, don't know why. I feel like 2009 rings a bell, but okay. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And uh, all I wanted to say was the CEO of Calico mm. used to run Genentech. And so okay. he organized that deal around the time they were thinking of starting Calico. Um, so it kind of worked out where um, you could sell this biotech company to a huge pharma company and that they would keep their things going mm -hmm. and then you could start like a side project. And so he was CEO of both at the same time. Whoa. Yeah. But he was actually the one that came up with, I think it was for insulin. He realized you had to use human cells specifically. Mm. So I think they had been using like, use hamster something for something. Um, but whatever, or maybe they were using yeast for something else. But the problem was like it's a protein that needs to be cleaved or cut by a human version of a protein. And then the final insulin product comes out looking a certain way. But in other animals, they don't cut it the same way. And so it's not the human version of insulin and it doesn't really work as well. Um, and sort of that advance really helped the company take off, helped his career take off. And so I just want to give that example. I think that was in the book mm -hmm. that they talk about that. Like some, it's, it was essentially like a small set of experiments that like weren't that big of a mental leap. It was just no one really thought it was necessary at the time. And he was like, no, nah, I think this is right. I'm going to try it anyway. So it's that idea of like, if you have an intuition about something, don't be afraid to take the risk and sort of bet on yourself. And sometimes it works out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the only thing I wanted to say about Genentech. Oh, and also they're known for having a really strong postdoctoral program. Yeah. So people that can get into that. It's very highly selective. Yes. But pretty much if you can get in, you can go anywhere you want after. Yeah. I remember hearing about the postdoc program while I was an intern and it, it seemed like extremely competitive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I like the idea of doing a postdoc at a pharma company. And I thought about doing that. I looked into it a little bit, but mm -hmm. what really drove, I was up until pretty much I got my job, I was still very much on the fence about either doing a postdoc yeah. or going right into industry. So, I mean, I know we jumped just from the internship now oh, and we're back good. here, yeah. but um, basically I was interviewing for postdocs and like, oh, maybe I should do it. It's, it's a pretty good supervisor. But I did realize also it wasn't branching out very much from what I had done for my PhD research, which I think if you are going to do a postdoc, like, for example, I wanted to study epigenetics and post-translational modifications of some drug transporters, but which is slightly different than what I was doing for my PhD program. But I think it would be smarter to like completely switch, not completely, but switch gears into more 
uh, like drug metabolizing enzymes, just something more different to, to really like round out the skills if I was going to do a postdoc. And it, it kind of just worked out in terms of like timing and thinking a little, a little bit more like, okay, if I can get a job in industry without a postdoc, mm-hmm. that would be ideal. Yeah. <laughs> so like, let's try and let's yeah. see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And then it just happened really quickly, which I was fortunate because I, I know it can be a longer process sometimes, especially with the way that some companies operate and they interview for a while and they don't notify notify candidates for a while sometimes but mine was very quick and easy so i was like this seems like the right group for me and i'm gonna do it so then postdoc was off the table yeah, yeah. well i applied because uh, i was again thinking similar to you the postdoc's a good stepping stone it like elevates the opportunities after that yeah um but postdocs don't get paid very well either. And I was pretty sick of being broke for so long. Um, and especially if I was going to come to California, it's just expensive. It's so expensive. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like if you didn't think you could afford life as a grad student in Vancouver, yeah. <laughs> then you're no better off as a postdoc in California. Yeah. I don't, th- I don't know. Maybe there's some supplementation you can get with like scholarships and things. But I think in general... You do get paid much better <laughs> if you're not a postdoc. Yeah. Um, but then there's the hybrid kind of where you get paid in industry mm-hmm. and they pay their postdocs more. Okay, like a, yeah. Like, a, like 50% more. Yep. Um, and that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I have basically applied to industry postdocs or jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got an offer at Novartis as postdoc. Nice. And then at Calico. And I applied to like 10 postdoc positions at Genentech. Didn't hear back from any of them. Yeah. And uh, then I decided to take the job at Calico. Um, and it, it I was senior research associate. So it's not a postdoc. It's mm-hmm. not like a great title necessarily. But I, again, I bet on myself and I assumed that I'd be able to get a promotion into like the scientist realm, which then opens up the possibilities from there. And that's what happened. So I got lucky. Nice. But, you know, than the pay. I wouldn't say you got lucky. Okay. I say that a lot myself and I'm just trying to train myself to not be like, oh, it was luck. Like, because at the end of the day, like, okay, let's say you started as senior research associate. The reason you got a promotion isn't luck, you know? Fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess people just kind of say it. And I I guess I try and call some of my friends on it too that say it too much Mm -hmm. uh, because it undersells their effort a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Um, but I like to think of luck as uh, preparation meets opportunity. That's so fair. That's just how I live my life. Yeah. So it's really the the definition. I think might differ from person to person what luck actually means. Yeah. Because you do there is a certain part of it that is somewhat out of your control. Yeah. Circumstance, of timing. Yeah. Um, you might just be like innately offered more opportunities than some other person, like just through random connections. Um, but yeah, at a certain point it is a balance of also working toward it and setting yourself up for that success. Yeah. I feel like I've read some things recently too. Um, it was, there's a study on luck and I think the result was that like lucky people aren't technically any luckier than anyone else. Like Mm -hmm. the amount of sort of random opportunities that show up are similar across 
kind of anyone. Yeah. But the lucky people have a different mindset. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to see an opportunity as like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Now I should capitalize on it. Mm -hmm. I've been waiting for something like this. Yeah. As opposed to someone that feels unlucky. And then if, you know, there's tons of opportunities that present themselves, but it's not quite perfect. And they're like, oh, well, then I'm yeah. not going to do it. And then you, you never kind of move forward. And the example that they gave was like the, the study was they got everyone to read a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And on the front page, there was like a little block in like the bottom right corner that said, go to page 20 for the answer or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the goal of the study was. And the assignment was to like find a specific word in the newspaper or something like that. So like finding a needle in a haystack. And so the unlucky people tended to just start flipping through the paper and like reading line by line. And they're like, they gave up most of the time partway through. And then the lucky people just, when they took a look at the paper, they looked at it like, kind of zoomed out mm -hmm. and they saw like this big arrow on the side that said go to page and like oh that's kind of cool and they just kind of flip and the answer's right there and they're done mm -hmm. and i feel like that's a great uh allegory to what luck looks like to me it's that you prepare and prepare and prepare so like you know when an opportunity presents that's like in this realm i'm ready to jump on it mm -hmm. and i feel like i'm capable so i don't like, doubt myself at that point because i've prepared specifically for it yeah and then i can just move ahead and yeah. there's no like loss of time or overthinking or whatever but you know if i'm a mindset of like just down on myself or feeling sorry for myself or something then it almost perpetuates that cycle mm -hmm. so mindset matters yeah and you know be grateful for the opportunities, be looking for them as well. Mm -hmm. Things change, they will come around eventually. And you have to sometimes embrace things that are scary. Yeah, like that's I, a big one. <laughs> I do attribute some of my success to just like going to a lot of different conferences, sometimes funding my own way there. And I mean, as a grad student, I don't have extra money really, but I'm like, okay, it's gonna pay off in dividends later which literally ended up happening when I met my like previous boss yeah. at the conference. Like I paid my own way there. Yeah. Um, no one else from my lab was going to that conference, but I was like, Hey, it's a great conference. Um, and again, like I used to get scared sometimes reaching out to people to like ask for chats um, or like, I don't know. Yeah. Just a little bit nervous and be like, Oh, what if they say no? Yeah. But at the same time, like, Worst case, case scenario, they do say no. It doesn't really matter. You're no worse off than when you're started. Exactly. Yeah. Like, if your ego takes a hit, like, get over it. It's fine. Yeah. And pretty much everyone is willing to help you. They've been, that's been my experience, at least. I've never once reached out to anyone where they've been, like, straight out, no, I don't want to chat with you for half an hour or whatever. And it might be that the people I'm reaching out to specifically have been connected to me through someone who knows they're, they're, good at this but at the same time yeah you don't know unless you take the chance and put yourself out there and try to set yourself up for su success and like even just having these coffee chats and stuff i would leave always feeling super inspired and sometimes if i felt a little bit down or something a few months later i'd be like okay like i know that reaching out to people actually makes me feel better after the conversation so like let me just talk to someone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, 
like I think you do that really well. That's not everyone's as good at that. Mm. So it also seems just from the outside perspective that you're quite brave. Like there's a lot of things you're willing to do that most people aren't. Mm. And you seem to just kind of go for it. At least that's what yeah. it looks like for me. I don't know if you're you're uh, really good at hiding your nerves or. <laughs> or I what. think it comes. Oh, I get super nervous, and okay. you mentioned <laughs> imposter syndrome. Right. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> still have that. You know, I don't like. Yeah. Maybe it gets less and less over time, but I still don't think <laughs> it'll ever go away. But it's yeah. hard too when you're like walking down a hallway and everyone has a PhD, and like you hear about the schools that these people have gone right. to for your whole life, like Harvard, MIT, and like, yeah. I don't know. Everyone I work with. It's, it's like, yeah. I feel especially, I don't know, maybe it's also coming from Canada. I'm not, I'm not saying anything in terms of it being a bad place to be educated. I don't think that's true, but it doesn't have the level of international, like recognition, recognition as, yeah. as all of these places. And, I have no idea whether or not they are at the same playing field. So just coming from that and yeah, I mean, being in a room of like insanely talented and inspirational, intelligent mm -hmm. people, it's like, okay, do I fit in here? Am I ever going to be there? Like, but that being said, I remember walking into my grad lab, mm -hmm. so first year master's student like looking at someone doing cell culture and being like, I could never do that. And I'm like, okay, now it's just because in my head, it looked like something intimidating yeah. that I had never done before. Cell culture is like pretty easy <laughs> once you get doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be more complicated depending on what you're doing. But yeah, just in general, like I think sometimes seeing things, they can be really intimidating from the outside, but you don't really even know until you're in it that it's like, okay, Yes, it takes time to learn. You're not going to know everything right away. But all you can do is just take the opportunities and just go with it. And I mean, if down the road you really feel it's too difficult or too overwhelming or too stressful, like nothing's permanent. Just yeah, figure it out. Like it. You, you can change. You can do something else. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a great attitude. And I think it, it's obviously served you pretty well. Yeah, I still I still get nervous sometimes, but yeah. yeah, one thing too that helped in grad school was going to the conferences, presenting posters or, or oral presentations. Like I used to be like almost deathly afraid of doing public speaking. <laughs> like honestly, most embarrassing thing ever, grade four, I peed my pants in front of the whole class, like because I was oh, so no. scared trying to give this presentation. Yeah. And like just crying before oh. public speaking. And I mean, I still get nervous now, but a lot of the time I get like good reviews after and people are like, you were nervous? Like, I didn't know you were nervous. Mm -hmm. So in your head, you're like, everyone knows I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but realistically, like, it's in your head. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I think that's really true. I have a different perspective. I always relish the opportunity to talk in front of a crowd. I think it, I don't know, I have this debate with my family all the time. I think it's because when I was a kid, I was very quiet because my siblings were very loud and they wanted attention and they needed a bunch of whatever. And I was like, eh, I don't care so much. You guys do whatever you want. And so when I get a stage, I'm like, okay, it's my turn to talk finally. Nice. Um, and then, you know, the in terms of not being afraid of trying something new, I think I get that from my dad. And it's like, 
the scale of things he's had to tackle in his life, it makes whatever I have to do seem so simple because mm-hmm. he's from Iran and he had to escape during the Civil War. And so everything he's done, he's completely self-made. Like but, the grit and the resilience. Yeah, yeah. And like even on the little things, like just growing up, seeing him do stuff, like he was a car salesman, but then, you know, the car industry kind of crashed and then he went into like landscaping and renovation and stuff. And like there's all these skills he picked up along the way. They just had no idea how to do. Mm-hmm. And he was like, someone else can do it. I'm going to try it at least. If I'm not good at it, okay, sure, I can move on and try something else. But more often than not, it wasn't that big a deal. And like someone else did learn it. And it's mm-hmm. kind of incredible what we can pick up, especially with practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think also the more times you like overcome your fear, the easier it becomes to do that. And then I think your opportunities even expand from there. Yeah. It's like it, feedback loop that helps. Well, and if you're not willing to put yourself out there, like you are going to limit yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You already have a preconceived notion of what you can and cannot do maybe and pretty much anyone can do anything in in a certain sense you know to a certain degree yeah it's kind of like we place limitations on ourselves a lot i think i think it's incredible what a person can do in general Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that's fair to say yeah and most people don't realize their full potential yeah i'd say that's probably fair um, and I was going to say one more thing because you were you're saying like you're not sure if the Canadian schools are as good in education or whatnot. I think they're as good in education, if not better. I think generally Americans find that the Canadian grad school is more rigorous. I think most grad schools you need three papers to publish and to get your degree. Mm-hmm. Here it's not like that necessarily. Sometimes it can be one. Yeah. And a, a lot of the time, apparently, they tend to specialize on one technique or like small subset and so they don't necessarily get the breadth that some Canadians have because when you're in kind of a smaller lab sometimes you're asked to like cover multiple roles you just don't have the expertise for someone so you learn it yourself Mm -hmm. so I think like coming out of grad school like our skill level is the same if not better but I do think there is a downside to the way Canadians go about things kind of in general but again it's like a self-fulfilling thing of um, limiting like a, there's a ceiling mm-hmm. and I think part of it is people just wanting to be friendly and look out for other people and not want to like make any people feel bad or anything like that but I think there can be a little bit of this um, sort of sense in the air that you don't want to achieve something too big or go too aggressive um, either because it's just the infrastructure is not there and can't support it but also it makes other people feel uncomfortable sometimes. And I started to feel a little bit of that at the end of grad school where I was, I was running hot. Like I was, I, I wanted to get out and I wanted to go as big as possible. So mm-hmm. I was running like hundred percent. I was like doing my exercise every morning and meditating, making sure I was locked in anything I was scared of or like putting off. I just did it head on. And I wasn't like, you know, Anytime I had to message someone and ask for something, it was just like on top of it, it became automatic and I was getting a lot done. Like mm-hmm. my productivity like doubled or tripled compared to the rest of grad school. I was getting all these papers out and stuff like that and starting to win awards. And then my PI stopped putting me up for awards because 
my other colleagues hadn't won some in a while and I'd already won a bunch. And she was like, oh, well, it's an opportunity for someone else to get some. Mm-hmm. And I got, I was livid because I was like, I worked my ass for this and I am part of the peer group that is evaluated for this. I believe I should be put forward just like anyone else on the same playing field. I don't think that's too much to ask. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and the pushback I got was like, like, how dare you take an opportunity away from someone? I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right? The way I see it is you this took This isn't a parti- like participation medal. It's like, it right. should it should be merit-based. And it's interesting you say that because I, like just with how my supervisor was so busy trying to kind of implement precision medicine and like get policies and stuff and, and being a medical doctor, kind of taking that approach and not being as invested maybe as he was in his previous parts of his career in, in the basic research. Like, yes, he was still doing it, um, but he had, I think, a different set of goals. Mm-hmm. There was no one putting me up for awards. Right. <laughs> but then actually, luckily, like in in my last year, there were a couple times where someone external was like, oh, like I, I see you and, and they actually put me up and it just felt very nice. I was like, oh, someone's thinking of me. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's validating in some way, but yeah. at least recognizing like I'm not here on an island uh, yeah. being invisible. Um, yeah. So I, I, I tend to be, I know I err on the end of like being a little more like stubborn on this point of like equality of opportunity. And then whatever shakes out after that is how it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like in Canada, there's a concerted effort across all kinds of domains where we want everyone to be pretty well off. Mm. And so we don't want anyone to fall too low. but We don't let anyone go too high. And you kind of just have this happy medium where it's a good place to live a family, everyone lives a decent life, that kind of thing. And for me, it's suffocating, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And I also come from a background of like from like my dad in Iran and stuff where it's a different society over there. And so I I was raised with the context of like what it is to be a person in general mm-hmm. and what are the different ways to go about living. And I know for a fact in North America, that's not how everyone does it. Yeah. Especially in Canada. It's not the only way to do things. Um, and I also come from a family of like entrepreneurs and stuff. And looking at the opportunities in the U.S. versus Canada is a drastic difference. It's just not supported in Canada as much. And the U.S., they go crazy. But then you have the, the bigger extremes. You have way more poor people in many aspects. It's like a third world country in many places. Um, but then you get the uber super successful people on a global scale. And I just felt like you can't get that global impact in Canada or like it's almost never going to happen. Well, and I agree with that in terms of like our careers, for example, in the industry that we're in. It never even occurred to me to try to look for a similar job in Canada because yes, we do have some pharma industry. I think it can be very niche and specialized. But that being said, the opportunities in the States and even in Europe Mm -hmm. are much greater especially if you're just establishing your career. Um, Like some of the advice I had gotten was to actually start at a large pharma company if you can. 
because you have so many experts there in various different things that you can learn so much in a small amount of time. And depending on what you want to do again, like who knows, maybe I'll go back to Canada at some point. Mm -hmm. Got to do my five, 10 year plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, just like having exposure to such brilliant researchers, not, not to say that there's not Canadian talent, but like the opportunities are not there for right. us. Like, there is some talent that I think comes back after maybe going away. I would say away. they even have the talent. They just don't In, support it to yeah. their maximum potential. Yeah. I guess, yeah, all I'm trying to say there is a lot of people that could be retained in Canada if they had the proper opportunities go elsewhere. Yeah. Well, that's a brain drain that people have been talking about forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but... Mm -hmm pretty obvious at this point that it is a thing unfortunately um well that kind of leads into the next bit so being where we are and having that concentration of industry jobs i think uh something that you've been through over the last few months mm -hmm. can really capture the uniqueness of being in that environment so would you mind telling people sort of you've been through a transition in your career and yeah how that's gone about yeah absolutely so the company i joined in october 2020 is called theravance biopharma and i think we had around 350 people so not a startup but definitely not large pharma mm -hmm. but again i joined because it seemed like a really great group of people and great opportunity and so we're located in south san francisco but over the course of the year or so that i was there there were three, I think it was three clinical trials in phase one or two that didn't meet their primary endpoints. Mm -hmm. um, and with that said, I think there was a lot riding on yeah. those, <laughs> those clinical trials, especially if you're a smaller company on the small side. Having three of those not pan out is a major loss. So basically, I remember after the second one, there was definitely some tension in terms of just the vibe, um, just people kind of questioning, okay, what's going to happen next? Like, what if this next one doesn't work out? Um, I think even after the second one, people thought at some point there would be layoffs. But yeah. after the third one, and because we're a public company, um, all of these reports get released to the public like pretty much as soon as we see them, unless yeah. you're working directly on that specific yeah. project. So it was announced that the third one didn't meet the primary endpoints. And right then, um, the there was an announcement of 75% reduction in force. So I mean, a typical layoff oh, wow. that's like considered large is like maybe 30%. <laughs> so 75% yeah. is a huge cut for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I knew right away, especially like being the least senior one there. <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's no way I'm staying. <laughs> So, yeah, it basically went to, I think, less than 75 people, maybe 60 people now. But, yeah, there, like, that was announced mid-September. And the way that these work, there's some sort of laws where you don't just, like, cut people's jobs and that's it. Like, you have to have, I think, two months or so for them to transition and try to find something. So the news was announced September 15th, and, I mean, it was upsetting, <laughs> definitely. I remember a couple weeks before asking my manager, I was like, so what does it mean like in terms of job security? She's like, well, 
as long as you like where you're working and you feel you're still growing and stuff like those are the metrics that I go by in terms of like sticking with a career. So I know other people had been like looking for a job before the third mm. result was announced. Yeah. But I was like, oh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> and then I was kind of like slightly shocked when it did happen. And it mainly sucked because like I really did like the group of people I worked with. I think like I'm hoping that I can find a similar mm. kind of vibe with people. Um, but you never know, right? Sometimes yeah. it's not exactly what you want. So we'll see. But yeah, basically my last day at TheraVance was November 30th. And it was a little bit tough working there between the announcement and then the end of because you super awkward. You kind of just know it's coming to an end and yeah. also don't have as much work to do, so you feel like your purpose isn't there. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of tough. Um, and then at the same time, they were pretty flexible in terms of saying like you can interview during work hours if you need to, as long as you're getting the work you have to do done, things like that. And there was also a lot of support from everyone. Mm -hmm. in terms of like trying to help me find a new job so people were super nice and it is a small world like it is yeah everyone knows everyone in a certain sense so just having people reach out and connect me with people they knew who were hiring helped a lot like i already had a few emails and linkedin messages the same day of the announcement wow. um to like just be like hey do you want to like interview here so I think at first I didn't know how hot the job market was. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah, it's <laughs> so moving. it's definitely booming right now, especially for, I guess, people in my type of role and being kind of junior and stuff. So yeah, I had a few people that I worked really well with at their events um, connect me with people they said were amazing to work with. And I think even just having their like them vouch for these mm -hmm. people um made me more comfortable and then i i would do like more comfortable considering a job like working directly with that hiring manager for example yeah and then i also like looked up the companies because some of them were smaller didn't know exactly what they did so i tried to find what i thought was a good fit scientifically but also interviewed with a few companies and decided like where I thought the company culture and, and the group I'd be working with day to day um, fit the best as well. Because to me, a lot of these companies are doing amazing science and the science is still important to me, but I think I need like a pretty solid feeling that I'm going to get along well with these people and that um, like it's not just work you to the bone, not care about like how you're doing. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really fit with my whole way I want to live my life. Mm -hmm. So just finding a place where I thought the balance of being a really great company, again, kind of following the advice of some of the mentors I had previously, trying to get some experience at a larger company. Um, that was also a consideration. And then, yeah, I start my new job tomorrow. So all from... Exciting. <laughs> yeah, it took me about four weeks to sign the job offer from being like, announced that we had been laid off and not formally laid off until like two months later. But mm. I felt this need to solidify and sign something like as soon as I could mm -hmm. just for my own like sanity. I'd be the same <laughs> way. Yeah. 
And I mean, there's a little bit more of pressure also being on a visa. Like, right. Yeah. Like, we're not from here. So, I mean, again, yes, we're just from Canada. And worst case scenario, we go back to Canada and it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still like, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be forced out. Right. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm really happy. Um, I'm going to be starting as a senior scientist at AbV. Awesome. Um, and Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So it all worked out. Um, I'm exciting, excited to work with the new manager and I don't really know who's going to be on the team that I'm specifically going to be working toward. Mm -hmm. So I'll be focusing on oncology, which is different than um, I was working on respiratory programs at TheraVance. But mm -hmm. I mean, you don't need experience in the specific disease mm -hmm. area necessarily that, that you're going to work with. You just need kind of some basics and again, the so I'm a drug metabolism and pharmacokinetic scientist. So drug transporters and other things I learned in the year and couple months that I was at TheraVance um, really apply heavily to this role. So Nice. Yeah. So you're saying, did you say you got a job within a month of being laid off? Yeah. You still had a month <laughs> left in your old job? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you think that's unique to the area that because of the proximity to all these other pharma companies, you not only had the concentration of opportunities, mm -hmm. but there is a sort of environment culturally as well, that there is sort of interflow between these companies? I think in a way, yes. Um, but also it's kind of interesting how the, the landscape is so different these days. Like, for example, I don't actually work in the lab. Like I don't need to be on site. And I was, people were reaching out from not just San Francisco area, um, but like Boston is mm -hmm. a big hub and things like that. Um, and asking if I was going to relocate. And I was like, no, <laughs> I just got here. But definitely it is helpful to have so many in this area because I know at least for um, the next few years, I, I do want to live in this area and um, see how it goes. And yeah, just having... So many companies, you know, like mm -hmm. we work very closely, like geographically, geographically. to one another. Yeah, I could see Theravance the from where I was across the street. Yeah. And AbbVie just opened a brand new location in South San Francisco and is literally across the street. Yeah. Like across, <laughs> so funny. across the crosswalk from Theravance. Yeah. So like, and then Genentech is just down the road, did my inter internship there. Yeah. So like, there's just so many companies and I mean... I think it is great. I think it is helpful. And like companies, especially in biopharma, do go through a lot of transitions. They do restructurings and things like that. Mm -hmm. So just having um, a lot of opportunities in the same area is actually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a safety net. It, you're more able to fail because there's another opportunity across the street. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's really important. And again, that's something that doesn't exist in Canada. Mm. So it can't have that self-perpetuating cycle of yeah. acquiring really good talent and retaining them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So I think I've taken you for longer than we agreed upon. <laughs> so that was awesome. Thanks so much for sharing your time with me. I have one final question before yes. we go. And it's on purpose really broad. So we're both technically biologists, right? You could say that. Kind of. As an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
scientists, I guess mm -hmm. you could say more broadly, um, but working in the, with biological systems. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly where I'm at, I'm thinking a lot about uh, life because we're trying to expand, extend lifespan or health span as well. Um, but there's some questions I've had to revisit of like my basic definitions of things because also just in the science, what we think of as life and trying to preserve life or health, it can have like a slightly different definition depending on what angle you're looking at. Um, and the way things have been classified in the past doesn't necessarily reflect the um, the most specific definition, if that makes any sense. So my question is, what does life mean to you? Yeah, that is a very broad question. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing that came to mind was just like trying to find your place. There's so many opportunities and options, especially like if you have a lot of interests, I think it can be difficult to know or feel that what you're doing is right. But at the same time, I think that there are these definitions of like what's right and wrong. I think it's not black and white. It's more like, okay, like what does this opportunity give me in this moment and mm -hmm. what can I learn from it now? Mm -hmm. And does it still resonate with what I thought I wanted? Um, does it resonate with what I do want now? And again, thinking more to the future. Mm -hmm. um, do I think this is where I might be later? You might not know the answers to all these things, but I think just like we are generally driven by like purpose and trying to make an impact and enjoy ourselves along the way. Mm -hmm. I think the older I get, the more I'm trying to slow down in some aspects of my life and like really enjoy what's around me and not be so hyper-focused on like working really hard and like nitpicking everything that I've done wrong, but yeah. more looking back on where I've come from and be like, okay, interesting path. <laughs> and um, like, yeah, just, I think the older I get, the more I like myself and the more I understand myself and I do feel optimistic that it's only going to get better. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's not to say that I don't go through hard times or anything like that. That's not the case. Like things can be difficult, but at the same time, <laughs> one small thing that just came to mind was like, I just went back to Canada like a week ago. And one day with the wind chill, it felt like minus 25 Celsius. Yeah. And I was like, I'm never living in a cold place again. <laughs> and I got back here and I was walking in a tank top and I was like, it's so nice though. I think I was underappreciating California before I left because there was a bit, even though like I went through a lot of emotions in terms of losing my job, getting a job, which I was exciting, excited about, but then still kind of tied to my old job that I, I wasn't happy working at because of the circumstances, just like it's okay to go through that. And I think it's totally fair, but at the same time being like, okay, like put that aside. It was a very small part of like this amazing opportunity that I have. And let's just see how it goes and, and trying to be thankful for what I have. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful answer. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for taking the time to consider it. And, um, 
answering, you know, truthfully, it sounds like. So I thought this was a great conversation. I think it's exemplary of the message I'm trying to convey. Um, sort of uh, an empty space where I think we can start to contribute to those that don't really know what it's like to navigate an academic career. Um, and I think it's unfortunate because there's all these people that can do great big things. Um, there's all these opportunities that exist around the world. Um, and, you know, I just want to do a little small part in helping, you know, perpetuate that cycle of people self-actualizing, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for taking the time. Um, it was great to speak with you again. Yeah, no, thanks again for having me. I'm very happy to be here, Dr. Matt Veras. And I'm happy you're doing this. And I hope I answered some of the questions about trying to navigate industry. And I guess the last thing I'll say is just try to find mentorship, try to network. And really, even if the infrastructure isn't there or the resources aren't there for you to like kind of try and navigate industry or something, from Canada, like you got to take it into your own hands and mm -hmm. reach out when you need to. Yeah, very well said, Dr. Russell. Uh, thanks. <laughs> this has been Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis with more to come.